The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to pick up on our discussion that we started last week on China and the aid business. And for those of you who may have missed the program, it was a fascinating discussion with Aid Data's Director of Policy Analysis, Samantha Custer, who talked about their new survey and how China is still far behind the United States when it comes to reputation and that a number of uh, African and leaders from developing countries still rate the United States and Western aid agencies as being um, preferential partners rather than China. And we found that absolutely fascinating in light of the fact that China has been pumping in more aid money over the past 15 years than almost any other country. In fact, going back to some aid data information, this was a survey that came out last year. Uh, they found that from the years 2000 to 2014, that's a 15 year period, China spent $354 billion in aid. A lot of this, in fact, has been going to Africa. So it surprised us a little bit that this had not stuck a little bit more. And it led us to wonder if maybe there is a gap in understanding, A, what is Chinese aid? And B, why are the perceptions really not clicking and serving the needs of Chinese policymakers who are presumably spending this money as part of also a soft power agenda? Kobus, what are your thoughts on this? This is a particularly good time, I think, to talk about this because China has recently revamped its international aid and, and positioned it in a separate agency, whereas before it was run out of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So I think it is a really interesting time to really ask what China's aid agenda is or what it, what it hopes to achieve, and also how China's own role is shifting from being a historical recipient of aid to now being a, an aid donor. Yeah, Kobus, you bring up a very interesting point here. A lot of people assume that aid is a benevolent act. And in many instances, it is. And we shouldn't take away from the humanitarianism of it that a lot of people, particularly in Western and Japanese governments, are very well-intentioned with the aid. There's no doubt about that, and I don't want to take anything away from it. However, it does also serve a policy objective, whether it's a domestic policy objective. In many cases, it's to provide jobs for domestic farmers or domestic lobby interests, or sometimes it's to pursue an international agenda as well. But oftentimes it's not quite as benevolent as it seems. And in many ways, China falls into that trap as well, because people really don't understand or are very skeptical of Chinese intentions. Uh, we're not here to necessarily decide if China's intentions on aid are good or bad, but we thought it would be interesting to bring in somebody who may have a perspective on this. And for that, I am thrilled to be able to have on the show for the first time, Shanta Blumen, who joins us from Perth. Uh, Shanta, a very good evening to you. Thanks both to both Eric and Corbis for having me on the show. Shanta, before we get into our discussion, let me introduce you to our audience a little bit and why I, I'm just so thrilled to have you join it. You have been working in the aid business for over 20 years. I'm going to I'm looking on your LinkedIn profile here and going through some of your experiences dating back all the way to, let's see, in 1999, you were in New York as a communications consultant for UNICEF. Then you were in West Bengal in India. You went to Islamabad with UNICEF, all doing communications work. Later, you were in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. 
Uh, you were the chief communications officer in uh, UNICEF in Harare, Zimbabwe from 2003 to 2004. Then you became the East Asia Pacific Regional Office Communication Specialist for UNICEF in Bangkok. And then you spent uh, almost, let's see, five years in, as the chief communications officer in the Africa Services Unit and later the head of communications and partnerships at UNICEF in China. So, my goodness, you, you've been around the world. Well-travelled within the same organisation. Well-travelled within <laughs> Club Dev, as we say. So, I think you're very well-positioned to comment on China, Africa, and global aid business issues. And I'd like to get your take on the aid data information about the perceptions related to the Chinese and aid. And from your vantage point, from someone who has spent decades working inside the system, why do you think it is that despite the hundreds of billions of dollars that the Chinese have spent over the past 15 to 20 years, that they're not getting the payoff in the perception game the way that legacy partners and legacy donors like the United States, the UN, the World Bank and the IMF continue to reap the dividends of, of even smaller investments than what the Chinese have done? Yeah, I mean, f first of all, I, I think... I mean, there's a lot of merit in the analysis, but I but I do think they're mixing um, everyone in together. They're you know apples and oranges and comparing them. I mean, they're they're comparing the multilateral system, which China is part of. So China is part of the UN system, so UNICEF, UNDP, and it is not traditionally been a donor to UN agencies. But there's a lot of effort, and we can talk about that later, to become more of a donor to the, the multilateral and especially the UN system. Um, and then they talk about, you know, the different bilateral donors, and then they lump in different UN agencies. And I think if the survey, as it said, was done to policymakers, I think... The perception may be different if you were talking to ordinary people. And policymakers, I think, in both Africa, um, in government systems, and also um, practitioners in the NGO world, have a vested interest in keeping the system going. And the system is one where we traditionally have a big bureaucracy that manages the aid and whether it's in the development world or the humanitarian world it relies on a machine that keeps it going and China has is a newcomer to that machine and the 350 billion that is estimated to have been given over the last decade or so um, is obviously also uh, a number that is not following the norms of that analysis. So it's not the same as if you looked at a USAID uh, report to Congress, so to speak, um, where a lot of the money is managed through subcontractors and also passed off to agencies. Um, so China's been very new to the game in being more overt and having more of a presence in the way it gives money. And it's traditionally been through you know, government to government relations on the demand driven by the country. So I think that perception survey has some merit, but I'm not sure that I would take the conclusion that seriously, to be frank. And I think, I, I mean, I, I give credit to their efforts to track projects, but I don't think there's a big conspiracy in China to hide this information. So I, I think it's just a very different way of giving money. And I, and I think it's time for the aid industry to reform. And 
So I I don't want China just to, to turn into DFID or, or to USAID. I don't think that's going to be very helpful. Well, on that, um, sorry to interrupt you, on, on that point, I wonder if you could, you know, kind of give us a, you know, for a layperson's um, thumbnail sketch of how the aid industry actually works. Like, where does the money come from and how is it paid and how, you know, which kinds is it loans, is it grants and so on? And then how China has traditionally been different from how that system works traditionally? Yeah, so, I mean, as you know, it's traditionally you have development banks and the World Bank is obviously, and the IMF are the largest, and the the Americans are the largest shareholder of the World Bank, so, so give the most money, but also have the largest say in how things are run. And then you have the UN agencies, um, which traditionally there's a mix between the agencies. Some are um, voluntary funded, which means that they get a money from individual member states of the UN. And there's that depends on the country and their contribution. And those agencies, which are UNICEF, um, WFP, um, uh, UNHCR can also fundraise linked to specific needs and requirements. So their money is, and increasingly, so they've traditionally relied on the bulk of their money coming from member states of the UN, the rich, you know, northern, western countries. Um, but in the last 20 years, there's obviously been a big push to diversify funding and increasingly tap into private sector, companies, corporations, foundations, and also individuals. And we've got, and the 1990s, I would say, was also the boom in the international NGO world. So when we had a growth, I mean, Oxfam and Save the Children are some of the oldest, but there's been a whole polythory of new NGOs that came on the scene after the Cold War. And they are also funded through primarily the bulk of their money will come from the government where they're based, headquartered. So if you're a British NGO, you're going to rely pretty heavily on, um, you know, Differed to give you a cheque along with your fundraising efforts from public citizens and your corporate partners. And then there's the third, the other actors in this are the subcontractors. Um, and this is interesting because there's been a real growth. I mean, I'm sitting in Australia and I think 87% of our $4 billion of foreign aid goes through now subcontractors rather than to Australian NGOs. So they're basically not-for-profit organisations that sit, you know, um, in the Beltway in Washington or in Canberra and tender for different development projects. And the money obviously comes from the respective government um, and they're project-specific. And, and that's one of the challenges at the moment that... A lot of, we, there was a huge debate about untying aid and not making sure that, you know, so much of it came back to the to the giver, you know, that you weren't all spending a lot of money on Americans, you know, consultants and, and, and vehicles and supplies from, from the donor country. But while there has been a move to reform and make aid more efficient, it's only gone so far because there's obviously a lot of vested interests that have been built in maintaining the levels of who gets a piece of the pie. And there's also a vested interest in obviously, well, more demand from taxpayers to justify where their foreign aid is going. So in some ways that has meant that 
there's more of a conservative approach. We'd prefer to give money to things that are safe, things that will, um, you know, micromanage through a subcontractor is going to be a safe bet rather than handing a cheque over to the government of Nigeria. Yeah, just to give some examples of that, when I was um, when I was working at France 24, France 24 in Paris, um, the, every European and major international broadcaster that's state owned has a broadcast training academy, and the idea is to teach journalism to uh, and broadcasting skills to developing countries. What was fascinating was how aid that was given to say Tunisia or Morocco was then as part of the aid package, they were required to hire France 24 at very high rates to come in and teach them about broadcasting. The money, of course, would then circulate back to Paris to France 24. Hmm. Secondly, uh, there was, when I was at RFI, Radio France International, they had a program where they would give aid for bloggers in the Congo, for example, to develop new media platforms. But they had to have all their hosting, their web design, and a lot of the services were all had to be done by French contractors as a condition of the aid. So 80% of the money stayed in France, and only about 20% of the money actually made it to the people on the ground. And that is just, again, to what you're talking about, to me the insipid corruption of the aid business, because really it's a jobs program in many instances and not necessarily designed to help the people it's intended for. Now, interestingly, if the Chinese also come under the same type of criticism. Howard French, the author of, uh, uh, what was the name of the book, Kobus? China's New Continent? China's or Second Continent. China's Second Continent, a very, I've forgotten the name now, but a very famous book in the space. Um, he points out that a lot of, of Chinese financing, which is this, this infrastructure development, the money actually never really leaves China. It's the, the contract signed, the infrastructure is agreed to, the Chinese banks hands it over to the Chinese state-owned enterprise that does the development, and very little of the money actually makes it into Africa to benefit African people. Now, those aren't necessarily aid programs, so we're not talking about the same things. But now that China has a new aid agency, I don't even know what it's called, but it, with the last National People's Congress, it was announced that China will move its aid program out of the Ministry of Commerce, where it's been up until now, to an aid agency like USAID, like uh, DFID, uh, like any of the other European and legacy donors. It'll be interesting to watch if China will follow the patterns of the West, where you talk about this oftentimes a closed loop whereby contracts are given to national contractors and very little of that money really goes through to where it needed to be because it's eaten up either by bureaucracy or by politics. What's your assessment looking at where the Chinese are going and what they are doing if they will, if you think that they're going to more replicate the Western model or are they going to pioneer a different way of doing aid that is actually more empowering than what it's been? Well, first of all, I think China, even though we use this word aid, it's a very... It's a sort of a crazy word because it means lots of different things. So it depends on where you're looking. So I, I mean, the the fact is that uh, uh, China sort of defines, it calls it development cooperation, and that includes the roads and the bridges and the financing and the government to government support to build a parliament or where whatever whatever the infrastructure project is, along with, um, you know, um, maybe food relief that you know. It, it may give or sending medics. But I think China's, as we know, are very pragmatic and they learn as they go. So there's been different shifts. So I would say, you know, in the past Cold War era, China has been in Africa sending medics and helping to provide sort of solidarity efforts. 
and then it moved to, you know, its outbound newfound wealth and stopped being a recipient country. Um, and that transition sort of happened in the 2000s as, you know, it was sort of a you know, a point where it reached middle income status and recipient countries um, and being a recipient, as as Corbis said initially, and getting money um, after it opened up from the Brits and the, the Europeans um, was much harder to justify. Even though, I mean, Differed is still there and there are definitely programs operating to try and influence how China builds its global aid footprint. It's essentially learnt that, say, building a hospital alone in Angola is not going to lead to a drop in under five mortality if the hospital never gets handed over to the local health ministry because they don't have any doctors. So there's been, I think, I would say in 2000, I went to, to a, I went to a hospital in Angola and it was just after they'd done the deal to open and build a district hospital across in every provincial um, capital. And this hospital literally was sitting closed and full of beautiful equipment. And the Chinese guy was waiting and sitting there and he'd been sitting there for a year basically to hand over the key. But you would have needed every health worker in the province to move from where they were and including the Russian doctors to move to this hospital. Um, and they, they would have needed a, a huge investment in training. So that was in a way a white elephant project. So I think China... But how does that get done? I don't... This is what I don't understand about the aid business. How is it possible? Because that would have been the first question that I would have asked. Like, who's going to actually staff this thing? Well, but so, I mean, they, they're actually... They had supported a training program alongside it, but... Building soft skills like training doctors takes four years. And as we know, China can build a hospital very quickly. But but this was d driven from the government. This was part of a partnership. And when China first came onto the scene in Africa, it, they, they're, they're always very clear. It's demand driven. They want, you know, it to be decided by the recipient country. So Angola decided that we've had 20 years, 30 years of war. We have no infrastructure. What do we need? We need to build hospitals in all of war. All of our hospitals are old or war-torn, so we're going to get the Chinese to build the hospitals. And that was, you know, part of a financing deal. And to be frank with you, the Angolans didn't get the aid they expected after the war. Most most of everyone thought they were big oil producers and been so much corruption. So no one else was offering any financing. And so the Chinese came in and the government did ask them and they did it. And so what I think you're going to see now is they're still going to be focused on demand driven. Ultimately, the demand is going to come from the recipient country, which is good because let's face it, in the traditional space, um, it doesn't necessarily come demand driven from the government. Often governments are bypassed in the foreign aid system or dictated to. So for African governments, it's obviously very exciting to have a partner that doesn't you know, dictate to you or look down on you or make you a beggar and then says, we'll build you some hospitals. Great. But I think they also realise they can't continue to build white elephants that don't have an outcome, that don't improve health or don't leave a lasting mark. So they've become more sophisticated and they realise they have to do diligence as well as listening to the host government. And they're going to be a lot more, I think there's going to be a lot more scrutiny on what requests uh, are met and how they are negotiated and how they're financed. And, and we've seen that journey in the last five years. When I was in Beijing, 
um, at the last FOCAC, there was a commitment to public health, not just agricultural and infrastructure. You know, they were building clinics and health clinics. They were moving down to realise that if they were going to have an impact on the majority, they needed to move closer to the ground. And they also needed, you know, and poverty alleviation was also another priority. So I think there's a realisation that, you know, doing just exactly what the president says is not going to lead to, to massive change. In relation to that, I think there's also in Africa frequently a, a kind of a narrative, political narrative of, of governments that want big, flashy, impressive projects. You know, the, so they would prefer to have one big central hospital that looks great rather than 10 small rural clinics, for example, even though the clinics might be more useful. I don't know if, if do, do, like, what, what do you, how do you see the, the role of African governments in this exchange? Well, I think, I think it's important that they're a bit more thoughtful about what they want from China. And I think they're learning as well. And I think there was a bit of euphoria in the beginning when, you know, it was an alternative source of financing and infrastructure that no one else was offering. But I think, you know, depending on the government, of course, there is more 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 discussion now. And they've obviously also, they want the infrastructure in a way that it can be maintained and sustained because it doesn't look good on them if they have lots of white elephants as well. But I think what's really interesting now is, so there's been a battle between the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Commerce about controlling foreign aid. And basically it's coordinating between different ministries. So if the Ministry of Agriculture, so agriculture has been a priority under FOCAC. So the Ministry of Agriculture will be the line ministry that then works with partners in Malawi or Zambia or wherever they're doing a, a project. Um, so, so that coordination has sat under MOFCOM and that was, that dates back to the 1950s. But going back to this question of how do they align all the pieces and how does it align to their overall foreign policy agendas and the One Belt, One Road and their other strategic ambitions, that MOFA obviously wanted more control, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So the compromise well, I don't think it's a compromise. I think it's a very strategic step. It is now um, an agency under the state council, which gives it more status and more political oversight because it reports to the state council um, and under the National People's Congress and, you know, has a lot more. It's elevated now above both line ministries to coordinate amongst everyone. And the new head is actually the, the most recent, um, who's just been appointed as head of, was former head of the NDRC. Um, so that's also a very strategic decision because the NDRC is very important in planning. What is the, N I'm sorry, what's the NDRC? The National Development and Research Council. Okay, okay. Just want to make sure we, our acronyms are uh, understood. Yeah, so it's a, it's a statement that this is going to be an important sort of step where China does now want to have, I, I think it is interested in soft power and I think it's worried that it's been giving lots of money and all it does is get a bad rap. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Witt's China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. 
One of the themes that Kobus and I have been talking about on the show for the past, say, six months or so, is how the bloom is off the rose in Africa for the Chinese in many respects. We're seeing investment trends that are declining. Uh, trade is declining. Uh, net emigration from China to Africa is declining. So many of the leading indicators are all pointing downwards. It really peaked about between 2013, 2015. And in part because there are now so many other opportunities for the Chinese to invest and engage around the world that just simply weren't there 15 years ago. And it brings me up on this aid question as well, because while Africa, for the most part, has occupied the lion's share of Chinese development money over the past 10 years, uh, China now is very, very ambitious with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization for Central Asia. Uh, so that's the equivalent of FOCAC in Central Asia. It also has the community of Latin American and Caribbean states. Uh, that's uh, the CELAC Forum. Uh, so there are a number of other FOCACs in other parts of the world, uh, not to mention the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, the New Development Bank. There's all these new initiatives that the Chinese are developing. And I'm just wondering if Africa will remain the, the focus of China's development programs going forward. So I'm going to ask you to take out your crystal ball and kind of look into your crystal ball. We have the FOCAC uh, summit coming up in September. Do you anticipate that Africa will receive as much aid as it has in the past when there are so many other demands on the Chinese aid agenda for other more strategic parts of the world, particularly along the Belt and Road. What's your thought about the direction of where Chinese aid is going in Africa? Well, so I think it's important to acknowledge, I mean, I think you've most probably heard that at FOCAC, everyone is going to be allowed to become part of the One Belt, One Road initiative. Um, but I think you're also, I mean, the, the overall point you're making is that there isn't an unlimited tap um, of money that's streaming out of the country anymore. And I think um, there's going to be a better distinction between what is a viable business venture and investment. And I think the government is going to offer that political and diplomatic coverage, but it's going to be up to corporates and due diligence in the development banks to make, you know, the decision based on financial due diligence rather than on just political whims. Um, I think in terms of the aid, which, you know, as I said, I think, you know, in China they define it more as development cooperation. Now, that is where I think it's going to be interesting because China's hedging its bet in a way, just to sort of tell you about the new aid agency, um, the, the, one of their first tasks is to process applications for this $2 billion fund that was committed um, by President Xi at the UN in 2015 for South-South cooperation. So South-South cooperation was sort of the, the, the way China positioned its foreign development cooperation. It doesn't want to join the traditional, you know, um, OEDC countries and, 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 and be conforming to those rules. So it was positioning it as South-South. And this $2 billion, um, basically they're spreading it. So different groups were sort of um, given guidance on how to apply and they are a mix of UN agencies um, think tanks, Chinese think tanks, a few Chinese um, NGOs and foundations and a few INGOs. Um, and they have got to align the grants submitted, the proposals submitted, obviously have to align to China's priorities and have agreement from the recipient country 
Um, so UNICEF, for example, was going to propose health projects and obviously had worked with the host government in Ethiopia and other countries to make sure that that contribution would be aligned with national agenda. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting. This is their first sort of test of working and they're testing both the multilateral system. Do we give it to the UN, which we know is fairly expensive, but maybe we can get some better PR from that, you know, and, and, and more traditional out. Our results. Um, do we? Where do we? What do we do with our new, um, growing philanthropy sector, um, which is starting to go outbound? Um, and that's a whole other conversation about the charity space. But there, you know, lots of big foundations. And obviously, since the passing of the Chinese Charity Bill two years ago, there's been a huge growth, and many of them are just slowly starting to explore going to outbound countries. So you'll see some in Cambodia and Myanmar. Um, China Poverty Alleviation Foundation is one of the largest. They have a very successful school feeding program in Ethiopia and they're expanding in, in Uganda. So so they will not just channel money. Um, they, they're starting in a way to follow and replicate the West in a way, um, to, to channel it through through different organs which can give them more of a story and more of an impact because they also are under pressure now to prove that the money that they give overseas is worthwhile because they're under public scrutiny. Um, when we were working at UNICEF, we would see a backlash sometimes um, from on net citizens about why should we be giving money to that poor country when we still have poor people in the West of our own country. So they, like like the Brits and the Americans, have to deal with domestic constituencies and prove to them that sending money to Africa is not a waste. Um, so it's going to be a really interesting period. Um, the, the, what I understand is that um, the 70 people that were working in MOFCOM on foreign aid in, in, the, in sending money out of the country have basically moved. Um, so we don't know how big it's going to grow. Um, I don't think they're going to replicate a huge bureaucracy, um, but I do think it will have to grow to manage the volume of money. One of the criticisms um, that China has faced is that it doesn't want to play the um, coordination game in the aid sector. So, you know, there's a lot of mechanisms for coordination of the donors and coordination of the INGOs and coordination of the aid sector and in the aid reform. And China essentially hasn't been playing a game because one, it doesn't have the same vested stake, but two, it just doesn't have the capacity, even in a country. So if you take Zimbabwe or um, Malawi, the person that manages the funding and the aid being given at a country level is the political, the trade and economic commissioner at the Chinese embassy. So he's got a huge task. That is so weird. I mean, it's just, you know, it's so different than anything that we're familiar with, that, that some guy who's doing trade and economic deals is also, oh, by the way, I've got, you know, aid in my portfolio as well. Yeah, it's, so you uh, can't blame him for not going to every coordination meeting because he doesn't have time. Yeah. He doesn't have time. Wow. Well, I think the key takeaway here, Shanta, is that the Chinese are going to play by a different game. They're not going to be doing subcontracting like the Americans and the Australians do and, and others do. That's because they want to retain control. That's just not in their nature to kind of release control. It, they also don't come from a culture of independent civil society, independent NGOs. So you're not going to see these NGOs kind of form that are free like they are in other countries, particularly in the West 
to to innovate on on, on policy. And so what, I guess the takeaway is that we're going to see something different and we don't really quite know what shape it's going to take just very quickly because we're totally out of time. But looking forward, what do you see in terms of where this is going, particularly in Africa? Well, I mean, just to, just to add, I think the other really interesting thing is how China is going to play the multilateral game. And, you know, it's very interesting because the UN I, I w- was, you know, has always been considered expensive. But I think they realise that to some degree they want the UN to continue. And so they are putting more money through the UN. And I think there's been a huge amount of lobbying advocacy by UN agencies to try and convince um, China to channel more money through that system. And I think that will be very interesting because with the US cutting foreign aid, but also cutting money to the UN system, there's going to be increasing pressure on China um, to give money make up the difference. And I don't think the Chinese are going to give the amount of money to, to take up the US shrinking um, funding. Um, so I think it's going to be also interesting to how it plays within, I think they'll, they'll continue to participate and they'll pour some money in. But I don't think, I think there's a lot of people outside in New York and Geneva who hope that China will somehow be an alternative saviour. Um, and I don't think that's going to happen. The other, the other game that's going on just finally is that everyone obviously is interested in, you know, reaching the Chinese public and, you know, wanting to raise funds um, amongst China's middle, growing middle class and wealthy. And um, so I think that's obviously going to be an interesting space because China obviously has a regulated space. And the, you know, the permission for public fundraising is supposed to be domestic organisations. But I can see there's going to be a lot of pressure to push the envelope to see how much money we can raise, uh, can be raised from funding appeals and emergencies as we do in the West. Well, Shanta Blumen is a 20 plus year veteran of the United Nations and UNICEF in Africa, Asia, China and has some very, very fascinating insights on where Chinese aid policy is going over the next few years. And we are just so grateful that you took some time this evening to join us. We really appreciate it and hope you can come back soon. We'd like to have you come back after FOCAC. Once we see what the magic numbers are that have been unveiled and what direction aid is really going, backed by the data from what they reveal at FOCAC. So that that would be a great kind of post-game analysis to have you join us again. No, I'd love to come back. And thank you both for the time. Thanks so much, Shanta. We appreciate it. Kobus, I thought the most interesting takeaway from the discussion with Shanta was the fact that they're playing by a different set of rules. And we say this over and over again in so many different facets, but clearly in the aid business, a lot of people are going to recognize the new aid agency. It's a development agency, just like Canada's International Agency for Development or USAID or DFID in Britain. But I don't think it's going to actually play out on the ground anything like what people are familiar with. And I think that was the most interesting takeaway from from what Shanta was saying is that, I mean, up until now, a trade and economic advisor in Harare has been handling aid. I mean, that's just crazy. I mean, so there's no reason to think that even though on the outside it may look nice and new and similar. And I can see a lot of Westerners saying, aha, the Chinese are finally coming around to our way of doing business. But at the end of the day, I think they're going to promote Chinese interests. 
promote Chinese power. They're going to follow the agenda of Xi Jinping. They're not going to engage civil society programs in anywhere or any way like the West does. And they're going to do it the Chinese way. And that is the only way they're going to do it. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how the Chinese way develops as they get more and more sophisticated and as they get more and more involved in complicated local situations. So as you pointed out, they have a lot of options nowadays and they have a lot of investments and, and uh, you know, engagement going on with different different parts of the global south. Africa is a particular, has its own particular issues, but in, in a lot of ways, Africa's issues are also shared across Oceania, you know, the, the Caribbean, um, and so on. So I think, you know, in a way that the changes to the Chinese system as we see them playing out in Africa could actually change the, the global system. And you're going to see a big change in the global system because at the end of the day, Donald Trump has made it very clear that he's putting America first and he wants to cut foreign aid dramatically. I don't see the new populist government in Italy uh, or Spain or Theresa May in Britain uh, getting a lot of public opinion or public support for generous aid programs to Africa where they are battling an influx of African immigrants. It, there's just the public opinion is not on their side. Interestingly, that Shanta said that she doesn't think that the Chinese will fill the void, even though there may be an expectation that if the West does pull back, China pulls in. Uh, we'll see that, that them kind of step up. But they're not, I don't think the Chinese look at it as their imperative. It's also very interesting, and I'd like your take on this, Kobus. The fact that the West comes from a largely Christian moral background, well, they all do, um, and I think Christianity and Christian morality played a large role in prioritizing aid. And the Chinese don't come from a Christian background, and they don't have the same moral imperative to promote aid in, in the same way. I think they look at it in much more geopolitical, strategic terms. I'd be interested from your time in Japan, also a non-Christian country that is a big aid spender. How do you think that religion or the moral structure of a country will influence the aid direction? Such an interesting question. I'm not 100% sure I really have the goods to answer it. Um, the In the case of Japan, obviously Japan has been a big aid donor to, to Africa for a while. Um, in the 80s and 90s, it was the biggest aid donor to Africa. But at the same time, there was also a lot of money flowing back to Japan um, from interest on, on loans and financing. So for a while, Japan was actually making more money from aid than it was paying out. Um, and that is not, Japan is not unique in that sense. I think that was, that's true for many other aid donors too. In in relation to East Asian countries, I mean, you know, the I, I think there is a, there's been a long-term morality in terms of helping the poor. You know, I think that that is a big part of, of East Asian culture. But I think it's also, you know, kind of comes within a, a, a different narrative of being a, an important country in the world. Um, and so we've seen, you know, Japan, South Korea, a, a lot of, of East Asian giants, as they, as they become larger in the world economy, they also be, start contributing more and more to aid. I think to a certain extent that is a reflection of how a Western paradigm and an aid paradigm has dominated the entire global system. And so being a big country also meant starting to act more like a Western country because they were the big countries. Um, so I think as China starts changing the system, it's going to be very interesting to see whether other upcoming powers feel the same pressure to act and to, to, to actually keep the aid system going, or whether there is a way of actually for the world to move beyond aid. 
So as many longtime listeners to the program know, uh, I am not a fan of the aid business. I think it's actually repulsive. I just find it disgusting, the whole thing from top to bottom. A lot of people disagree with me on this, but from what I've seen over the years in live spending almost half my life in developing countries and watching the aid business up close, it's never impressed me at all. It will be interesting to see if China does introduce a new set of rules. The skeptics are out there. Again, the skeptics for China are pretty loud across the board. But it will be interesting to see if they actually force change in, because they're a new player. They're forcing change in so many different ways. Also, we're in an era where rules of diplomacy and international norms are being broken left and right. I mean, just witness Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump in Singapore and what they did together. So I wonder if the aid business will be shaken up in the same way that other diplomatic sectors are being shaken up and broken in many ways. So in my opinion is that's not necessarily a bad thing. So uh, let's see what the Chinese bring to it. We'd like to hear what you think, though. Join our conversations. We're on all the major social platforms. We'll give you the addresses at the end of the program. But we, uh, we just want to continue this discussion of thinking about aid in different ways and what the Chinese are doing in Africa. And at the same time, we're, I think, Cobus, the next thing we're going to do is try and get an African perspective on this and switch the tables. Instead of looking at it from a Chinese perspective out, let's get an African perspective in. So if you have some guests that you recommend that we should speak with who are knowledgeable on this and you think think would be interesting. They don't have to come from universities. They don't have to come from, you know, big institutions. Shanta herself doesn't necessarily, doesn't work at the UN anymore, uh, but she has a lot of opinions and a lot of great experience that we were grateful that she could share with us. So email us. Our, 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 my email address is in the show notes, so you'll find it there. Uh, let us know people you recommend that we should think about aid, about anything really, and who you should think be on the show. If you want to be on the show, let us know. We always like getting your feedback and your suggestions. So Kobus and I will be back again next week for another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.